If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The NBA playoffs are here. And we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch. Because this is the turn it up to 11 NBA playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Today's podcast guest is the historian and broadcaster Greg Jenner. Greg's the host of the BBC podcast You're Dead to Me and also a historical consultant to Horrible Histories. He's an author, and the subject of this conversation was his latest book, Dead Famous, An Unexpected History of Celebrity. I spoke to Greg to find out more about the highs and lows of life in the limelight over the past 300 years. Before we even start this discussion, celebrity, it's a very slippery concept. How do you define it? Yeah, I I mean, when I signed up to write this book... I assumed that there was a definition. I, I, I just assumed everyone, because we all know what a celebrity is. You know, the celebrity master chef on the telly. We all like, yeah, 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 famous people. I sat down, started reading, started researching. A year and a half later, still couldn't find anyone who'd actually defined it properly in a way that was cohesive and agreed with the next person. So I've had to come up with my own definition, which is obviously quite, um, quite daunting, quite scary, because you suddenly think, oh, no, I'm... I'm making an argument. I'm not used to making arguments. Um, So my definition of celebrity is uh, based on a five-point checklist, five criteria. Uh, A celebrity is someone who is uh, known to strangers, um, but the the strangers know who they are, but they don't know who the strangers are. So that's called parasocial intimacy, when you've got a one-way intimacy. Um, They have to be unique. They've got to have a unique personality, something about them that's distinctive and recognisable. And iconic, they have to be um, have their fame spread through the mass media. So they need to be appearing in newspapers and blogs and telly and radio and whatever kind of stuff like that. They need to have a private life that is of fascination to the public. So it's not enough for them to be professionally interesting. 
So my argument is that Sir David Attenborough is not a celebrity. That's very controversial. It is. It is really controversial. And I'm sure it's a, a thing that people will push back on. But I, I would argue that he is not a celebrity. He is renowned, which is a slightly subtly different category. Because people are interested in his work, but not his life. Exactly. Don't, I don't know anything about his life. I don't know if he's got children. I don't know marital status. I don't know what car he drives. I don't know where he holidays. But I know an enormous amount about his career. So that to me is not celebrity because the personal life has not played a part in why we care about him. And the fifth thing, and perhaps the most important thing of all, is that celebrity requires a commercial marketplace based on the celebrity's fame. And the, the fact that people want to know about their private life creates um, basically a, a microeconomy where other people can make money from them. So a celebrity doesn't just earn money for themselves by being famous, by selling tickets, by you know selling their music or whatever. A celebrity is someone who earns money for other people who exploit their fame. Newspaper editors, journalists, photographers, T-shirt makers, etc. So the five-point checklist is uh, what I've been using and that then allowed me to look into the history of celebrity and find where does it start and what comes before. Well, on your point of where does it start... <laughs> Next question. Where does it start? Yeah. How far back do you trace this appetite for celebrity culture? So it's a really interesting discussion. Um, but my argument would be that celebrity begins in the early 1700s. And um, there are several reasons for that. The most important really is that you get in Britain and France, you get this sudden surge in what's called the public sphere. Jürgen Habermas is a philosopher who talks about the public sphere, which is this sudden arrival of people realizing that they're part of a wider society and they're wanting to join in. And so it's a kind of aspirational middle class. It's um, a literate or, or, or sort of semi-literate society. Um, people wanting to join in with wider discussion. And Habermas said that this was a sort of a learned highbrow kind of thing. People wanted to understand politics and trade and finances. Actually, when we look at what people are interested in, they're interested in sex and scandal and rumour and gossip and who's dating who and um, what you know, what new play is bombing at the theatre and no one's liking it and which actor has had a sort of scandalous falling out or who's been fighting a duel. So it's not necessarily the public are interested in, you know, trade negotiations with the Weimar Republic. They're, they're interested in which actress is feuding with which actress. So that's a key thing. Um, also around that period in history, you know, we have Queen Anne on the throne, followed by the Georgians. Uh, and in France, you have Louis XIV dying and it's followed by kings who are not quite as glamorous. And you end up with Louis XVI, who's a sort of quite quite an introverted, quite a shy man who likes, you know, locks and, and clockwork. He's not really as glamorous. So what's kind of interesting is that um, you see a movement away from the royal courts as the centre place of of spectacle. So in Charles II's reign, for example, or Louis XIV's reign, the, the royal courts are where all of the creative people go. Poets and artists and dancers and um, musicians, composers, they're all hanging around the kings trying to get their attention, trying to get big commissions, trying to get patronage. And the switch towards these slightly more, slightly more dull kind of royals, it is a big, it's a sort of, there's a subtle reason there that people in the creative arts start to drift back towards the cities. And in the cities, there's this sudden energy and liveliness because of the public sphere, because people are out there chatting in the taverns, in the coffee houses, in the theatres, gossiping. The creatives who ordinarily would be serving uh, monarchies and royalty start to say, well, okay, well, our public is now our boss. So it's kind of a democratisation yeah. process. Yeah, it is. And, and it's a process by which... 
um, capitalism plays an enormously important point. You know, my point about what is celebrity is that there's a commercial marketplace. It's when money changes hands as well. So we see that because these artists and creatives are losing their commissions from, from patrons, from royal patrons, they need to now fund their lifestyle, fund their work. They need to fund it from other places. So they're going to be funding it from ticket sales, from book sales, from um, the sales of engravings of paintings and so forth. And you need a wider audience to, to fund that. We spoke at the start about what you think defines a celebrity. But before that person becomes famous, do you did you identify any kind of recurring trends that you think makes somebody a good candidate for becoming a celebrity? Or do you think it's very dependent on the societal context of the time? That's a great question. And actually, it's quite a tricky question because I think there are so many variables that you have to, um, to keep in mind. There are, I think, people in my book who would have probably ended up famous regardless of how they tried it. They just, there was something about them. They had what we call charisma. They had something just innately fascinating or their personality was kind of just naturally alluring and exciting. And and so they probably, if they hadn't had the break that they got, would have found another way to, to make it famous. Who would you put in that category? Well, yeah, that's a good question. I think someone like Lord Byron, who was obviously, you know, anyone with the title Lord gets a bit of a step up in terms of a privilege and advantage, although his childhood was actually quite stressful. He was uh, sort of raised in poverty um, and he had quite a tough time at school. So I'm not saying he was sort of, you know, silver spoon and all that, but um, he obviously had advantages that others didn't have. But there was something about him as this sort of radical, sexy, um, scandalous kind of um, romantic figure that if he hadn't made it in poetry, he might have made it somehow, somewhere else. He might have just, you know still ended up being well known because of the kind of life he led and the sort of interests he had. Um, but then there are people like Edmund Keane, who's my favourite historical celebrity, and he's sort of the star of the book a little bit because uh, his story is just extraordinary because he was absolutely nobody, a total, total nobody. Um, an actor living a sort of hand-to-mouth existence, walking around the country, literally physically walking. I mean, he... At one point, he and his pregnant wife walk from Birmingham to Swansea in the summer heat, 180 miles for a gig, you know, because he can't afford um, a carriage. He can't afford to stay in taverns. They're sleeping rough. She's pregnant. You know, this is this is a guy who's barely um, making ends meet. And he's a raging alcoholic. He's a real problem guy. Um, and then he has this incredible breakthrough where he gets this opportunity to play in London the first time he gets on stage, it goes amazingly. There are a couple of journalists in the crowd, notably William Hazlitt, who's a very important um, journalist later on. At this, this point, he's quite young. But he is seen by these journalists. These journalists write these amazing reviews. Within a week, Edmund Keane is known throughout London. Within a month, he's a superstar. And he had been this alcoholic screw-up, you know, sleeping rough. And suddenly he is up there with Lord Byron. And that just shouldn't have happened. You know, there's too, too many variables had to perfectly align for that to work um, because his career was going nowhere. And the reason that he was put on that stage is because the theatre in, in question, the Drury Lane Theatre, was in huge financial debt and they were just trying anything. So they were experimenting. They were just throwing mud at the wall and going, what, what else can we do? And so they just found this random bloke in Exeter and went, yeah, we'll try that. And it's sort of the equivalent of getting a busker and putting them on stage in Las Vegas and going, this might work. Um, and it did work. And that's what's extraordinary. And his story is one of those stories where you go, well, that shouldn't have happened. 
He is a superstar. He's incredibly famous, one of the most defining Shakespearean actors of the 19th century. And yet he could just have easily died in a ditch. One strand that you um, pulled out there was the fact that it just so happened that influential critics and journalists were in the crowd. Yeah. And throughout the book, you see that um, the media played a huge role in making and breaking celebrities and also shaping the way that mm. they were viewed. How so? Yeah, and I think the media is obviously one of the sort of key five points of my checklist is that mass media exists. And we, when we talk about mass media... I think mass media probably is a sort of 19th century concept. Towards the end of the um, 1800s, you get what's called new journalism, which is where you get more of a kind of tabloid culture of spectacle, sport, crime, that kind of thing. But the first daily newspaper is 1702. And it's that really that kickstarts this fantastic print culture that gives celebrities the ability to get its voice out there, to get its name out there, for celebrities to be able to speak to the public. And they are doing that. I mean, David Garrick, who is this great actor in the 1740s, 50s and so on, was this um, brilliant theatre manager, brilliant actor. He was a master of comedy and tragedy, but he was also really, really shrewd in terms of manipulating the media. He owned shares in at least four newspapers and so would insert puff pieces about himself into the papers that he had a vested interest in. And he would manipulate the media in that way. Um, in a thing called puffing. Um, And lots of celebrities did that. And then you get later on um, big name people who were kind of made by the the media who who are looking for heroes. So Grace Darling was uh, the heroine of the... um, of the sort of the shipwreck disaster in 1838, I think it is, top of my head, um, where she rose out with her father to save people from a shipwreck. And she is turned into a celebrity by the media because they need to explain what's happened in this shipwreck. And it's quite a complicated legal case. And they're, they're trying to work out if the ship was unseaworthy and if there's a sort of, um, you know, should someone be prosecuted for negligence? And while that's all sort of happening, they're trying to work out, well, how do we tell this story? And a local journalist hears the story of a young woman who rode out with her father and suddenly everyone goes, ah, oh, that's the hook, that's the angle. Young woman goes, you know, woman gets in boat and rows through terrifying storm to save lives. That's not something we've heard before. And they turn her into a celebrity. And that's something that's done to her rather than something that she signs up for. So in my book, I, I describe the differences between achieved celebrity, where you're trying to get famous, ascribed celebrity, where you are born famous, essentially, and then attributed celebrity, where the media or the public say, right, you're famous now, sorry, nothing you can do about it, we're, we're talking about you. The story of Grace Darling, as you tell it, also raises the interesting point that she wasn't just made a celebrity, she was made simplified into a heroic icon. And we do have a tendency, and the media has a tendency, to apply very binary morals um, to our celebrities. Yeah, and it's a thing that happens on Twitter at the moment. And this sort of notion that when we discover someone, we can often sort of go, oh, they're the greatest person ever. They're amazing. They're beautiful. They're glamorous. We love them. They're the perfect. And then someone will uncover a tweet and suddenly it turns out that they're homophobic or they're racist or they're offensive. And and then they get demonised and turned into a villain. And that has been happening for centuries. It's been happening since the 1700s at least, perhaps earlier. Um, basically what happens is you get celebrities who are forged into heroes because people need heroes. They need these role models, they need these icons, they need rallying figures. So I talk in the book about people like George Washington, who was turned into a celebrity superhero as the president, and then his his sort of brand was mythologized, and by the end of his life, 
um, and in biographies, they were starting to say things like, "He never lied as a child." You know, he you know he cut down an apple tree and he refused to. It's like, of course he. What are you talking about? But he was turned into a saint, and so that would happen to celebrities. They'd be turned into these perfect icons. Happened to Florence Nightingale, and she hated being famous. She absolutely hated that fame arrived on her doorstep, even though it's actually in many ways a very positive, welcoming fame. She was heroic. People wrote about her. They named race horses after her. They named ships after her and pubs. People named their daughters Florence, um, uh, which happened quite a lot with celebrities as well. It, it's a common thing in the 1700s to name your daughter after a celebrity or your son. But she hated being famous and she really retreated from it. Whereas Mary Seacole, who, of course, was famous from the same war, the Crimean War, she really quite embraced being famous. She actually enjoyed it. She found it in many ways quite, quite exciting, perhaps because, you know, as a woman of colour on the edge of the empire from Jamaica, she, she'd always wanted to belong. She'd always wanted to be part of the, the empire. And, and she perhaps felt that this was her chance to be celebrated. And so she really embraced her fame. And she wrote an autobiography, which is really fun. And it's sort of full of name dropping clang, you know, moments where she's like, I was having dinner with so-and-so. And what's interesting is that these two women were turned into celebrities because the war was not going so well. And, and the media needed a hook and these two women who raced off to the Crimea to go and help soldiers and nurse them and care for them um, gave them a kind of angelic, um, idealised, religious angle. That heroising process was done in order to create heroes, but it would also be done to create villains. And so on the flip side, you get the, the bad boys, you get the, the highwaymen and the criminals, the Jack the Rippers, who was a celebrity, even though we don't know who he was and we don't know his name. Uh, there was this bizarre um, kind of commercial economy attached to him. Even during the time of his crimes, people paid money to go to the crime scenes, to go see wax effigies of, of his victims, to go on tours of where he might have killed. People were fascinated by him and paid money to know about him. And that is celebrity. It's cruel, dark, twisted celebrity, but it's, it unfortunately ticks all the boxes. So he was a celebrity. <laughs> Still to come on the History Extra podcast. So there's all these reasons why celebrities function in society. And it's not just that we've got, we need something to talk about. It's also because they help us understand who we are. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. 
And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. The NBA playoffs are here and we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even the speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch. Because this is the turn it up to 11 NBA playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. It's worth mentioning, and you mentioned throughout the book, that um, this was very gendered. And when applied to women, for mm-hmm. example, they quite often fell into the to the binary model of um, angel or slut, essentially. Yeah, yeah. There's a particular character who um, called Margaret Rudd, who is it's sort of a true crime story in that she is caught up in a, in a very serious fraud case. And there are two brothers called the Perot twins. And... They have been sort of caught doing a fraud, doing a bond insurance scheme, and they blame her and she blames them. And so suddenly it's a sort of he said, she said scenario and it divides the nation down the middle. The newspapers get involved, everyone gets involved. There's this sort of big, big court case because whoever is found guilty is going to be hanged. There is no sort of, you know, it's not like you're chucked into prison for three years and slap on the wrist. You're going to die if they think you've done this. And she plays up to the kind of meek, poor, innocent victim and says, oh, you know, I'm a young lady who, um, who has been um, vilified and, and turned into a patsy by these middle-class posh men with nice clothes and nice hats. And they're like, no, 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 she's, she's this harlot who's, you know, twisting it. We haven't, we, you know, we, it's not us. And there's this amazing court case where she, uh, the judge is blind um, and she uses her voice to convince him. She plays this fantastic sort of role in the courtroom of sort of weeping and crying and being very emotional and convincing him that she's been hard done by. And in the end, the Perot twins hang. And it's an enormously terrifying moment in kind of public domain because everyone suddenly realises there's been a miscarriage of justice. And as they're going to the gallows, all the newspapers are saying, this is wrong. And they're petitioning the king. They're saying, we need to save that this, something has gone wrong here because Margaret Rudd has transformed herself from this very meek, upset, sad victim. She's suddenly living the high life. She's dating sort of really famous, brash aristocrats. She's out in all the parties. She's dressing flamboyantly. She's suddenly performing kind of the celebrity role. And everyone went, heck, what, you were, what, hang on. You were all sad and emotional. And suddenly you're this really kind of quite controversial figure. Whereas the Perot twins are like, we're being hanged for a thing we haven't done. And they go to their deaths still saying we're innocent. And so... You see this sort of vault fast. You see this 360 kind of rotation through two different reputations. She starts off as a bad woman accused of a crime. Then she sort of defends herself and says, no, 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 I'm, I'm innocent. I'm a patsy. And then she ends up being vilified and she ends up being called the, the sort of devilish Mrs. Rudd and, and um, 
people sort of saying, you know, she's in league with Satan, while the Perot twins get turned into the unfortunate Perots. So they go through that cycle too. So there's a kind of interesting story there where you see the process happening to both sets and they get to experience both ends of the spectrum. That's really a perfect example of a press scandal. But it does seem that scandal could go either way. What determined whether it supercharged you to the next level of celebrity or it destroyed you? That's a really, really good question. And I don't know if there was necessarily always the same standard answer. I I think there probably were different things that that played a part depending on the era in question, the gender of the person perhaps, the the politics of the person, also of the the time. You know, if you think of someone like Mae West, who in the 1930s and so on, used scandal as a springboard to become a famous comedian. And she put on a play called Sex, in which she played a sex worker. And people were like, oh, my God, this is scandalous. And the newspapers were outraged. And she was thrown in jail for uh, gross indecency. But loads of people came to the play and it was a huge success. And people loved her. She was really funny and bawdy. And she had this amazing kind of sense of humor that was really fresh and vibrant and edgy for a woman. And she ended up with a movie career and became a big star. And for about 10 years was this big Hollywood star And she famously said, I climbed the ladder wrong by wrong rather than rung by rung, which is a lovely pun because she knew that for her scandal and sexuality and being a bit of a deviant was the route that she would use to get into people's sort of good books and that she would she would charm and titillate and thrill. And so for her, it worked, whereas for others, it it could be hugely destructive. It depended who you were. So there were plenty of um, women in the 18th century, for example, who wrote things called whore's biographies, which is, you know, a not tremendously woke title, but um, they would basically be doing kiss and tell stories. Um, I think the most famous one is Harriet Wilson, perhaps. Essentially what she did is she blackmailed all her lovers. She was a courtesan, she was a high-class escort, I suppose, or a sex worker, and then she went round all of her former clients and said, right, I'm going to write a book about you unless you pay me. So she extorted money from half of them who didn't want to be in the book, so that in itself was lucrative. And then those who were like, well, publish and be damned, which is what the Duke of Wellington said. Um, she then get to tell, she got to tell the story, which of course people paid a lot of money to read because, oh my God, the Duke of Wellington. So there's this sort of fascinating business model where um, people were selling their sex lives or rather other people's sex lives and the kiss and tell story could be lucrative as a blackmailing device or you sell it to the papers, you sell it to a, a publisher. And that book went through loads and loads of, um, of reprints very, very quickly. It was a huge bestseller. She did really well out of it. But in the long term, these things never work out. In the long term, these women always end up dying in poverty because they're never allowed to go respectable. So a lot of them tried to then become writers. They then tried to write poetry or to write novels and they weren't allowed. They were like, no, you're the woman who wrote the horse biography and that was fine because we enjoyed the titillation, but you don't get to be respectable now. So there was a sort of judgmental element to it quite a lot of the time and often very gendered. And, and there would be actresses like Sarah Siddons, who is the great actress of the 18th century. And she was incredibly straight-laced and she played maternal roles and she was much beloved, but there was sort of a rumour she was having an affair with her fencing master. Um, And so these little moments of of danger could really topple a career. She got away with it. She, She managed to sort of deal with it, but... For a woman like that, whose career was based on her being kind of squeaky clean and, and dignified, 
a, a little scandal like that could have been really serious. And then you have someone like Edmund Keane, my favourite, who's a, such a problematic... I mean, he's such an arsehole. He's such an absolute... I mean, I won't swear, but, like, he's such a terrible person. Horrible to his friends, horrible to his family. An absolute screw-up, an alcoholic, but fascinating and hilarious. He gets into all sorts of scandals and famously has a really, really kind of lurid affair with a friend's wife and it ends up in the papers because his secret love letters are... She leaves them on the side for her husband to find and her husband races off to shoot him and thankfully the sort of gun is wrestled away and the husband instead sues him, which means all the letters go into the court case, which means they get published and printed. So all of his secret, you know, secret text messages, if you want, are published and everyone is scandalised and he has to go to America on a big lucrative tour to try and escape the scandal. But when he's out there in Boston, the audience try and kill him. So he's sort of running away from scandal and everywhere he turns, there's more scandal. So, yeah, there is definitely an element here that the, the media could judge people, the public could judge people, but some people were allowed to be scandalous, and that was their brand. Lord Byron was allowed to be scandalous, but some people weren't, and it really depended on the, the time and place. I think that shows that there, there is a dark, arguably toxic side to fame, and mm. some people, it really doesn't sit well with them at all. No. Can you give some examples? Well, as I said earlier, fame could be done to people, and suddenly you wake up famous not because you've wanted, you haven't tried to get famous, you haven't tried to be in a play, suddenly people are talking about you. And this goes back to the ancient Roman word, fame, pharma, um, which comes from the, the Latin to, to speak. And Virgil, who's one of the great poets of the, of the ancient world, talks about fame as a monster, a giant bird-like monster, huge monster who reaches into the clouds and is covered with eyes and tongues and ears to represent gossip and rumour and how people talk about you. And this monster stalks the land and never sleeps and she sort of hunts people down like a ravenous predator. She's like a sort of giant Godzilla. You know, it's like a sort of Dali painting, terrifying idea. And so he talks about fame as this terrifying thing that comes for you and that it's based on the idea of rumour and gossip. To be famous is to be talked about, but in a quite scary, intrusive way. And... When we get to the history of celebrity, and I'd argue that ancient fame is a bit different to modern celebrity, although they're closely linked, but the ancient Romans didn't have the commercial economy and they didn't have the mass media. So for me, fame is a bit different. Um, but the gossip and the rumour and the scandal stuff is, is very much part of it. And so we get to modern celebrity in the 1700s onwards, and there are several people who really hated being famous um, or enjoyed it but it just started to eat away at them. So Florence Nightingale hated fame, full stop. Okay, so that you know, that's one case study of someone who just went, I'm not enjoying this at all. But then you get people like um, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, the philosopher and novelist, who's a huge star in the 1760s. He'd written this novel called The Nouvelle Héloïse, and people loved it. It made them emotional, they cried, and they wrote him letters and enormous amounts of sort of um, people just sort of turning up at his house to say hello. And... He started to lose his mind. He went into this sort of weird conspiratorial paranoid delusion where he started to no longer trust his friends. He started to see paintings of him done by reputable artists that were perfectly nice paintings. And he thought they were monstrous attacks on him. And he, he had a friend who wrote to him saying, oh, I'm hanging a painting up on the wall that I've got an engraving up. And he, he wrote back saying how dare you, I'll never speak to you again. You know, he refused to speak to one woman for a year because she'd said that she's got a nice engraving of him. He lost all perspective and he ended up in this paranoid, delusional, cons conspiratorial headspace where he thought the world was judging him and didn't understand him and he, 
that was fascinating. That's, that's you know, 1760s, a long time ago, and that's, that's really quite early. Um, there are lots of 18th century actresses who couldn't go out the house without being um, mobbed. Um, Mary Robinson famously said she couldn't go to a hat shop or a dress shop without hundreds of people outside wanting to sort of see what she was buying and waiting to sort of grab her. There are loads of early Hollywood movie stars like Florence Lawrence and her manager faked her death, said that she'd been hit by a trolley car. And so when she turned up alive, she was just mobbed by her fans who very nearly crushed her to death, ironically. You know, they, they were so excited she was alive. And she ended up with post-traumatic stress and ended up dying horrible, tragic life. Um, there are lots of celebrities who uh, couldn't go on honeymoon because fans stalked them everywhere they went. Um, there were celebrities who had fans break into their house and into their hotel rooms in the 19th century and 20th century. Um, you have Shirley Temple, who... Um, was a child superstar in Hollywood in the 1930s and 40s. She was six years old, but the movie studio decided to say she was four years old so they could have a longer career. And because of that, there was a grieving mother whose child had died on the day that Shirley Temple was born, according to the press reports. And in her head decided, therefore, that Shirley Temple's soul had come into the world to replace her daughter and that Shirley Temple must die. And so she took a gun and went to the... Uh, screening where Shirley Temple was singing and pulled out the gun and tried to shoot her and the FBI luckily were there and jumped on her and that was because the press team had lied about Shirley Temple's age and said that she was a certain age uh, and she didn't even know how old she was Shirley Temple on her 13th birthday um, didn't know how old she was because she'd been told her whole life that she was younger than she really was um, and then you have um, the terrifying uh, what was known as the the trial of the century where there's a very beautiful young model um, called Florence Evelyn Nesbitt, who was um, had two horribly abusive partners, the first of whom had raped her, and then her husband was horrible to her and whipped her and beat her and raped her, and then her husband shot her former rapist in cold blood in the public, and she was sort of thrown into the kind of limelight, and this trial of the century, you know, was a huge media story. So there are loads of people who were dragged through the press who, who found fame really intrusive and invasive and troubling and they couldn't go out. Um, and it, it got to them and it made them really sad and miserable and depressed. And there would be lovely things with fame too. There's the money and the glamour and the excitement and being, you know, I'm not saying that celebrity is always horrible but there is a sort of Faustian pact to it and some people suffered more than others some people got away with it and some people really really struggled you know Dickens kind of loved being famous but he was also sort of hounded everywhere he went particularly when he was touring in America and people you know queuing for hours and hours to see him and people breaking into his hotel room he had a stalker um so there is a kind of there's a it, when you became famous you lost your privacy and some people sort of were like, okay, I guess that's the price of fame. And some people tried their best to kind of wrestle that privacy back. But a lot of people just, you know, there was nothing they could do about it. They just had to deal with it. All of these things um, you've just been speaking about, stalkers and crazed mobs, celebrities going off the rails, it all seems like stuff that we associate with the sidebar of shame or the tabloid yeah. press. But it really shows that, Things that we think of as 21st century trends have a lot longer history. Yeah. And one other of those um, things that I think a lot of people assume is a, a very modern thing um, is people say, oh, they're just famous for being famous. Yeah, yeah. I haven't done anything. Um, but you suggest that there is a long tradition of this. Yeah, yeah. So famous for being famous is a, um, 
um, it's a line that came from Daniel J. Boston in the 1960s, who was a famous American critic who kind of complained that proper old school glorious fame was being kind of eroded away by this shallow superficial celebrity that was based on nothing, famous for being famous. Um, what's quite funny is that people were saying that in the 1760s. Um, there's a book by Thomas Busby called, I think, The Age of Genius, uh, in which he's like, God, in the good old days, people were famous for proper reasons. And now you just got all these sort of women in their sort of nice dresses who just are pretty. But, and I think what's fascinating is that in the book, I argue that celebrity is n in no way is it new, but it has accelerated. I'm not saying that the 18th century had the same kind of intensity and f sort of neon energy that the modern celebrity does. Of course not. And technology has played an enormous part. So the 19th century supercharges celebrity in ways that made 18th century celebrity look quite parochial because you get the arrival of... Um, well, steamships and trains mean you can start doing transatlantic tours. You can start doing international celebrities. So Dickens goes to America and makes mm, something like £30 million in modern money touring America. Um, Sarah Bernhard, who's a French actress, makes something like $80 million touring America. Um, and those sorts of technological changes really, really help increase the speed and the power of celebrity. And of course, as you get into the 20th century, movies and television and radio, all that. So I'm not saying that the 18th century is exactly the same, but what you can see is that absolutely every element of what we think of as celebrity is there in the early 1700s. And the first celebrity in my book is quite an unusual guy. He's called um, Dr. Henry Sacheverell, and he was a churchman. He was a Tory, um, a, a sort of Church of England uh, minister who gave a kind of really furious speech in St Paul's Cathedral, attacking Whigs and dissenters in the church, and ended up as this superstar celebrity. This is 1709. And he gives a speech, and it sells 100,000 copies. And he is paraded through the streets. He's given a guard of honour. There are riots in his name called the Sacheverell Riots. People smash up pubs, but they also are buying souvenirs with his face on it. They're naming their children Henry Sacheverell. They are um, wearing medallions with his face on it. Pubs are named after him. Everywhere he goes, people know who he is. And most interestingly of all, I think, he helps decide the election for 1710. Here is a celebrity basically deciding who's going to win an election. And these days we're used to celebrities getting involved in electioneering. You know, we're kind of used to that, of having celebrities stand up and say, oh, I believe, you know, Barack Obama is a good man, you should vote for him. But it happened in 1709. And it's kind of fun that the first celebrity wasn't a kind of a glamorous actress or uh, some erotic poet or some highwayman. It was this sort of really kind of unexpected guy in a poodle wig sort of lecturing about theology and why that dissenters are, you know, should be crushed and, and thrown out of the church. So it's been really fun and surprising to research this book. And it took me four years to research it because there's so much stuff. But the fact that he's sort of the earliest kind of tells you actually that celebrity has always been kind of what we expect it to be. So over the four years that you've been working on this book, how has looking at this history of celebrity made you look differently at how we engage with celebrity culture today? Well, it enormously changed my attitude. The truth is, is that I was probably going to write a slightly snarkier book anyway. I think I was probably going to write a slightly more, you know, humorous side-on glance, a bit more eye-rolling. And then David Bowie died on the morning I began the book. Pure coincidence, literally as I sat down to, to start writing. On, I ended up 
spending all day just listening to the radio and, and um, looking at Twitter and reading obituaries. And I realised that he had an enormous impact on people and not just in terms of changing the tides of culture and history, but he really, really impacted on people's lives and their personal lives in how they dealt with their sex lives, their gender, how they felt about themselves, what, you know, these, in, these moments where... You discover who you are through music, perhaps, through a favourite author, through a, a, you know, a, seeing a movie that changes you. And I realised, oh, hang on, actually, I've come at this slightly wrong. I've been, I was going to write a book that was a bit snarky. I'm now going to try and understand why is fame and celebrity perhaps a force for good as well. And I'm not saying that celebrity is necessarily a good thing, but it's not necessarily just a bad thing. It's not just a superficial thing. It's not, vacu- you know, it's not vacuous. It's not... Um, something we should sort of go oh god celebrity culture actually celebrity culture is incredibly important in shaping our morals and values and ethics what we think is important it changes how we think about roles in society sex and gender and morality drugs and crime um every single topic that you could sort of have a conversation with with your hairdresser or a taxi driver can be brought back to celebrity and often we'll start with celebrity you know quite often we're talking about some famous divorce or some famous person doing something naughty in the headlines and that's celebrity culture not just titillating and entertaining us it's not just passing the time it's setting the agenda for what we think is important to discuss That was Greg Jenner. You can buy his book, Dead Famous, An Unexpected History of Celebrity, now. It's published in the UK by Weidenfeld and Nicholson. You can also read a version of my interview with Greg in the April issue of BBC History magazine. That's available now and also includes features on Bloody Mary, the Battle of Okinawa, the Declaration of Arbroath and the real spies who inspired James Bond. Thanks for listening. Today's podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. We'll be back on Friday when Julie Wheelwright will be speaking about female warriors through history. (laughs) 